This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Duarte Geraldino. Every weekend, we're taking you deeper into the best journalism on Apple News. Esme Deprez's father, Ron, he was not a man who backed down from a challenge, especially not a physical one. He ran 18 marathons. He biked and he swam and he did yoga and he went skiing and rock climbing with us. He had, you know, these rock hard abs and huge biceps, you know, into his 70s that most people I know don't have when they're, I don't know, half that age. Ron grew up poor in Maine. He was raised mostly by his mother, but he had a strong work ethic and it paid off. He became a Harvard-trained epidemiologist. Esme says he was fiercely independent, the type of guy who didn't want to accept much help from anyone. But over the years, Ron's body started failing him, and it soon became clear he had ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. This is a fatal neurodegenerative condition. There's no cure There aren't even really drugs that do much of anything to stop or slow its progression. So, I mean, it's basically a death sentence. When you have ALS, your body slowly deteriorates. Eventually, people with ALS, they lose their ability to walk. They lose their ability to voluntarily control the movements involved in even talking and swallowing. They grow prone to choking. It's hard to breathe. You can get pneumonia. And then eventually, people die when their bodies essentially suffocate itself. And for Ron... That, in and of itself, felt like a death sentence. This idea that using your body to explore the world and to push it as far as it go, that was just really integral to who he was as a person. As this disease progressed, Ron lost his ability to do more and more basic tasks. He had trouble walking, lost the use of one of his arms. He needed help to urinate. And when Esme gave birth to her baby girl, Ron couldn't hold her. That was his first granddaughter, And I wanted them to be together as much as possible. And I could sense that he was really fearful that he was going to drop her because his arms just didn't work correctly. For a while, Ron didn't want to accept the fact that he even had ALS. His mind was still sharp, but he was losing control of his body. He didn't want to believe it, but at a certain point, the reality of his condition was undeniable. The disease just slowly ate away at his body, And it was devastating for him, you know? ALS snatched away his ability to be so physical and so active and travel the world and work all over the world. I mean, he no longer recognized the life that he now had with ALS. And also, he didn't want to be remembered as this frail, dependent shut-in. And I mean, he really became that. So I think he saw medical aid in dying as a way to really wrest back control from this disease that had stolen so much of what he was about. In April 2020... Ron became the second person to use Maine's medical aid in dying law to end his life. Esme Deprez is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Businessweek. In January 2021, she wrote a personal essay about her experience helping her dad die. Esme came out with another story in December. It was about a woman named Sandy Morris, who's an activist in the Right to Die movement. She also has ALS and is planning to use California's medical aid in dying law to end her life. Medical aid in dying in the U.S. is rare. It's only legal in 10 states and Washington, D.C. Since 1998, fewer than 4,500 people have used these laws to end their lives. 
Esme explains how these laws work today and exactly what medical aid in dying is and what it is not. Let's be really crystal clear about what we mean when we talk about medical aid in dying laws. In the U.S., medical aid in dying laws allow mentally competent people with a terminal illness and a six-month prognosis the ability to obtain a prescription for lethal drugs. There are a bunch of other hoops you have to jump through in order to qualify, but that's the basic premise. The dated term for what I just described is physician-assisted suicide. That term is now really only primarily used by opponents. Advocates will call medical aid in dying death with dignity. That's also somewhat of a euphemism. Euthanasia, or more precisely, voluntary active euthanasia, is very different. Voluntary active euthanasia is benevolently causing the death of a competent, consenting adult. What does that mean? So yeah, it's when someone else, as in not the patient, takes the final action to cause death. What this looks like usually is a physician physically administering the drugs, usually a lethal injection, but all U.S. state laws forbid euthanasia, and they do that in part by requiring that patients self-administer the life-ending drugs on their own. Typically, as in my dad's case, that looks like swallowing a thick, bitter liquid. So it's something that the patient does totally on their own without any help instead of somebody else, usually a doctor, doing it for them. In your article, you write, Critics would call my dad's death a suicide, but he wanted to live. He was going to die from his illness regardless of whether he used lethal drugs to hasten it. The word suicide never felt like it fit. Can you explain how and why medical aid in dying is different from suicide? The word suicide is really interesting because it demonstrates how much the language has evolved on this topic. Because even proponents used to call medical aid in dying physician-assisted suicide. But the thinking and the scholarship and the clinical practice has really evolved since then. People like my dad who seek these types of medical aid and dying deaths, they want to live. These are not rash, compulsive deaths that are done on a whim. The, the issue here is that these people are terminally ill. My dad was going to die imminently anyway. And so regardless of whether he used lethal drugs to hasten death, he was going to die. That's very different from you know, a healthy younger person who is otherwise going to live, who chooses to commit suicide instead. So the point of medical aid in dying is to avoid this prolonged, needless suffering. It's not to take a life that otherwise would continue to go on. Your dad was the second person to use Maine's medical aid in dying law. Let's go back to your experience helping him in this process. Can you take us back to when he told you he wanted to die this way? This was March of 2020, so the pandemic was just getting underway. And I was actually in New York for a work trip at the time, and he sent me a text message essentially saying he needed my help to qualify for this new medical aid and dying law that Maine had just passed. At the time, I knew extremely little about medical aid and dying Maine's law was brand new. Nobody had used it at that time. And, you know, doctors didn't really know how it worked. He really needed help navigating how to qualify for the law. And so that's what I eventually did. But, I mean, luckily for him, I'm an investigative reporter. So I think that did help. And so I really dove into 
figuring out what it would take to get him qualified and, you know, would soon learn that we needed, you know, two doctors to sign off on the prescription. You need to have a doctor declare that you have a prognosis of six months or less to live. So there's a bunch of different hoops that you have to jump through in order to qualify for this law. And, you know, that was frustrating on, on some level, but also very understandable. This is a, you know, extreme act to take. And so these laws are structured so that you can't just decide on a whim to do this. You know, these laws discourage all but the most committed candidates to doing this. You write about it so honestly in your article. I remember having to put the page down for a second to just take in the enormity of what you were saying when you had to think about the different ways that you would help your father die if he couldn't do it legally. What was that like? My dad was really nervous about not qualifying for medical aid and dying, just because it's a, again, it was a brand new law in Maine at the time. We didn't really know how it worked, and it was just unclear, you know, if it would work. So this did leave me in the disturbing position of trying to brainstorm various ways to help him end his life if the legitimate route of aid and dying legally was not available to him. So yeah, there were a few days in that time period when I was kind of brainstorming ways to off my dad, which just sounds as crazy as it felt. Um, You know, I thought about leaving him in the woods with his gun. I thought about bringing him out into the ocean in his rowboat and pushing him overboard, um, smothering him with a pillow. Uh, He had been given what's called a comfort pack by his hospice nurses that has morphine in it. So I Googled how much morphine it takes to overdose and kill somebody. Ultimately, we didn't have enough. Um, But the right to die movement and medical aid and dying laws, I mean, seek to prevent families from being put in these terrible situations where you have to contemplate, you know, what you might be able to do in order to end the suffering of somebody you love. In my case, again, it was totally absurd to be thinking of those things. And I'm so, so, so grateful that I didn't have to do anything more than just think about them for a few days. And luckily, obviously, in the end, we were able to go the the legal route. Let's talk about where your dad wanted to die. He wanted to die in Maine in a place called Deer Isle. He wanted to be surrounded by his children. Why was that spot so special to him? Deer Isle is this just totally magical place. It is quintessential coastal Maine. It's a bridged island about halfway up the coast. If you know Acadia National Park, it's right nearby. So you have these rocky cliffs and, you know, pine trees everywhere, of course, and the ocean. It's just a beautiful, magical spot. So he had found this place and he bought a place back in 2010. And like most of us, he wanted to die at home. He didn't want to die in a hospital, in a nursing home. He didn't want to be connected to tubes, you know, be in some kind of sterile environment. And of course, at the time of his death, we were in the throes of the pandemic as well. So, you know, a lot of people are dying alone in in hospitals right now. And obviously nobody wants that. And so he wanted to die at his home in Deer Isle, surrounded by his family. and, And that's what we were able to give him. Esme, what was that last day like? Can you describe what it was like as he actually took this medication? You were in the room, you were watching. My brother and I stood at the sink and mixed the medications for him. 
And that was just completely surreal to be mixing this drink that we would be giving to my dad to end his life. So we took him out on the porch one final time so he could be outside. It was cold. We were wrapped in down jackets. We recited poetry to him. We played his favorite songs. We meditated. Um, and he gave us a few, you know, final words. He he talked about how he'd miss not skiing with us again. We had been taking shots of, of Irish whiskey at the time uh, with my dad <laughs> from this fancy bottle of, of Red Breast 15 year that he'd been saving for a special occasion. We were listening to David Bromberg's version of Mr. Bojangles and singing along. And, you know, we were at one point marveling at the fact that this was such a better way to die than being hooked up to tubes in a hospital bed. And then we mixed the final medication and my dad swallowed it with seemingly no hesitation. Uh, he said something like, that was enough, I'm dead. Um, and then he closed his eyes for the final time. And for a while, it looked like he was simply taking a nap. He obviously wasn't. And at that time, my brother and my husband and I just sat around him holding his hand until his pulse finally gave out hours later. And, you know, at that point it was just, uh, yeah, we were just sitting there with my dad's body and, you know, eventually his skin grew pale and his body became cool. And my brother kept saying it wasn't him anymore. He wasn't in there. His spirit had gone somewhere else. You describe your father's death uh, as an incredibly difficult time for your family. But was there something affirming or powerful about having the chance to all be together, to plan it, to think about it together and discuss it as a family, and ultimately be there as he closed his eyes and took his final breath? This idea of, of control, I think, emerged as a really central theme throughout the experience and the reporting then of the story and, and writing the story about my dad. And that was a really important idea. I mean, for the most part, we get to be in control of our lives, but our deaths, that is less often the case. You know, control over our deaths often gets ceded to doctors who work within this medical system that has all these tools to prolong our lives instead of let them end. Then, you know, a lot of us have families who don't want to see us go, of course. So this idea of control and that my dad could die in this way and rest back control from this disease, ALS, that had snatched away, you know, his life, had snatched away everything that he he had lived for, was, I think, a really important, empowering idea. And it taught me things too. You know, my, my dad died in April of 2020, just as the pandemic was getting underway. I obviously wasn't ready for my dad to die. How could I have ever been? But as I say in the story, I mean, I couldn't change his decision about how and when to die. And that's because he was in control. You know, when his terminal illness had stolen so much of his life, his freedom, his independence, he could still be in control over his death. And I had to learn as a result that the only way I could honor his right to be in control was to surrender my own. I mean, I wasn't in control, nor should I have been. It was his life. It was his death. And ultimately, I felt like that was the final gift that I could give him to help him have the death he wanted and be in control until the very end. 
Almost a year after Esme's article about her dad's death was published, she wrote another article about medical aid in dying. Its focus was Sandy Morris. Sandy has ALS and is planning to opt for an assisted death in California. And you should know that the vast majority of people who opt for medical aid in dying are cancer patients, but ALS patients make up the second largest share of people taking this path. In the U.S., there is this one aspect of many medical aid in dying laws that's problematic for people with neurodegenerative conditions like ALS and Parkinson's disease. It's a part of the law that Sandy is trying to change right now. Sandy Morris, she's 55, she has three grown kids, a loving husband. She spent almost 30 years working at Hewlett Packard. She lives in the mountain town of Sierraville, California, near Lake Tahoe. And for the past couple years, ALS has just been ravaging her body. And so mentally, she's still a total firecracker. <laughs> she's a fierce advocate for uh, not only for medical and dying, but primarily she's a fierce advocate for people with ALS. Um, but physically, you know, she's a shadow of who she once was. She's almost completely paralyzed from the chin down. So that has led to this big dilemma for Sandy and other patients like her. Because California's aid and dying law, like virtually every other made and dying law in the U.S., is structured to require self-administration. So patients like Sandy with advanced neurodegenerative diseases like ALS and Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis, these patients, when they get to the end stages of their diseases, they require assistance in virtually everything they do. But the only thing with which they are legally barred from getting assistance with is administering the aid and dying drugs because of the way our aid and dying laws are structured. So this has led to this horrible dilemma for patients like Sandy. Sandy wants to live as long as she possibly can. She wants to continue with her ALS activism. She wants to spend time with her family. But at some point, she's going to lose the ability to physically administer the aid and dying drugs on her own. And so that leaves her with this choice. She can act now and essentially die prematurely, lose time living, or she can wait and risk losing her access to the law and thus face the prospect of ALS, death by suffocation, that she's just desperate to avoid. It seems like such a painful dilemma because she does not want to end her life prematurely. She wants to maximize it. But the way the laws are structured, in order to have this choice, she has to act before she loses the ability to act. What are these you know, self-administration safeguards trying to accomplish here? The safeguard that patients self-administer was conceived of in the 1990s when Oregon was passing its law. And it was thought at the time that if we require patients self-administer the drugs, this is a really good hedge to prevent anyone from being you know, killed against their will, essentially being being euthanized against their will. So it was conceived decades ago as a well-intentioned attempt to ensure that a patient, you know, was giving their full, complete consent, and that was demonstrated by taking the final action themselves. It was a, a safeguard. But in cases of extreme disability, like people with ALS, like Sandy, you know, the safeguard has become a barrier. And the problem is that it can end up excluding people with ALS, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and other conditions. These patients, again, need assistance in virtually everything they do, but the only thing that they can't get help with is ingesting the aid and dying drugs. And so at some point in the course of your illness, 
these patients lose the ability to self-administer and thus they lose access to the medical aid and dying law. And so that's what Sandy Morris's lawsuit is all about. She's the lead patient plaintiff in a lawsuit that challenges California's medical aid and dying law. I mean, the premise of the lawsuit is quite straightforward. Sandy Morris and her doctor and a few others are arguing that the law violates the equal access protections of the American with Disabilities Act. They say that this prohibition on patients getting help taking the drugs is discrimination based on a physical disability, and thus it should not be allowed. And what they ultimately want is to expand the law. They want the court to provide a carve-out for severely disabled patients like Sandy to be able to get help taking these drugs. Critics say that by changing these medical aid in dying laws to allow for the self-administering of life-ending drugs, it could mean that vulnerable people are going to be wrongly euthanized. What do Morris and her doctors say about that? The passage of medical aid and dying laws can be really controversial. Um, but let me just say first that the concept is actually not that controversial for most Americans. Majorities of Americans have, for decades, told pollsters that they support giving terminally ill people the choice to stop living and even giving doctors the ability to end a sick patient's life and suffering directly. So majority of Americans are supportive of this. However, as you say, a small vocal minority of opponents to aid in dying have been able to hold a lot of power. The main arguments come from religious groups that considered assisted death akin to suicide, to a sin. Disability rights advocates have been very powerful opponents. They warned of the potential for abuse and coercion and discrimination. Physicians even have been, you know, historically opposed. They argue that helping people die is antithetical to their role as healers. And a lot of the opposition warns of this so-called slippery slope. Mm. This idea that if we sanction medical aid in dying or active voluntary euthanasia, the risk is too great that will too easily slip down the slope of putting patients to death even when they don't or can't consent. I found it really interesting in my reporting that even professional advocacy groups who lobby to pass medical aid and dying laws have also been somewhat conservative in their approach. So the, the lawsuit How so? Is, how, how have they been conservative in their approach? What are they not doing or what are they doing? Professional advocacy groups, for the most part, they want to legalize aid and dying laws as we have them now, but not voluntary active euthanasia. So that's, again, when somebody else commits the final act that leads to death, usually that looks like a physician administering a lethal injection. That's caused somewhat of a split internally in the movement, and that helps to explain why our laws here in the U.S. are structured the way they are, and also what has led to this lawsuit in California that I write about. So that's one of the things about this lawsuit that was so interesting was it's really pushing even advocates to examine why we have written the way our laws the way we have. Other countries don't have this hang up about self-administration. They don't require self-administration in the ways that we do here in the US. Canada is a really interesting model because obviously it's, you know, a, a country that's very similar to ours in in many ways. They give people the choice. So they say if you want to pursue an aid in dying death, you can either self-administer or you can have a doctor do so for you. And the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of people who take advantage of that do indeed want a doctor to do it. That is the most clinically efficient route to death. It's less laden with potential problems 
So most people choose to do that. A lot of medical aid and dying advocates that I spoke to for this story, they'll kind of quietly say, you know, that's probably the ideal model. We should probably give people the choice in part to leave room for people like Sandy Morris, you know, with advanced neurodegenerative diseases who are ultimately going to, you know, require help in administering the drugs if they want to live as long as they possibly can. Our medical system seems so geared towards extending life that, as you write, it's difficult for it to make that pivot to help you end it. Yeah. And one thing actually that makes me think of is I read a book by Atul Gawande being mortal while I was reporting the story about my dad, and I so wish I had read it prior to his death. Um, it's all about kind of opening up conversations about end-of-life care and, and death and not making it this taboo subject that we as a society have typically cast it to be. One of the things he says in that book is, he says, quote, endings matter, not just for the person, but perhaps even more for the ones left behind, end quote. That quote just really stuck with me because it speaks to this idea that medical aid and dying gave this really peaceful, graceful, at-home exit to my dad, especially during the craziness of the pandemic. And that was really important for him, but I think it's been really, really important for those of us like me and my husband and my brother who my dad has left behind. I think it's really helped me personally work through my grief about his death because obviously I'm I'm horribly sad that he's gone and I miss him every second of every day. But to know that he didn't have to suffer at the end and that he could die the way he wanted to that has brought me so much comfort and so much peace. So how do you think your dad's experience fits into the larger story that we're going to be telling about medical aid and dying in the future here in the United States? I mean, I hope one thing that comes out of this is just forcing conversations about dying and disease and end-of-life care. I mean, these conversations can be uncomfortable, but they're really important to have with, with your loved ones and with yourself. And so medical and dying, as I say in the story, that's it's a really extreme act, not suited for most people. It's not going to be the path that most people take. But what these laws actually create, and hopefully what my story creates, is an, is an opening for people to think about and to discuss what they want at end of life, what they want their deaths to look like. I heard one doctor speaking about this, saying kind of, we don't treat death with the importance it deserves. It's a fact of our lives. None of us are going to escape <laughs> without dying. And so we should treat it with the respect and the importance that it deserves. And so I just think it's really important to kind of open up those conversations as, as hard as and uncomfortable as they can be. For me with my dad, as traumatic in a way as it was to hear that he wanted to end his life this way, it did make sense given how he had lived. You know, he was a really confrontational guy. He was a my way or the highway guy. Um, <laughs> you know, he did things whether or not you liked them and he didn't care in some ways for better or for worse. So this type of death for him made sense. And I feel really, really grateful that he was just able to have that opportunity available to him so he could die in the way that he had lived. And that was a gift. Estimated Press's articles for Bloomberg Business Week are available now on Apple News. You can find the link on our show notes page. 